Today we're going to continue our third in our series of four. Now next week is our last in our series about, um, uh, about people who want to believe in God but just can't. So if you have friends, if you have neighbors, you have family members that uh, kind of don't want to believe in God simply because he doesn't do good things to people all the time, uh, bring them here next week. Why does God do bad stuff to good people? You know, why does God allow tragedy to happen? And that sometimes is a real roadblock for people. We're going to talk about that next week. But we're going to continue in our series today. We're going to talk about the goosebump God. Now, remember the first week, we talked about the on-demand God. You know, when I make a demand of God, he ought to, he ought to perform right away. Uh, last week, we talked about killjoy God. Why does he have so many rules? And does he have so many rules? And so we have to understand that, uh, and it was a good time last week. Today, we'll talk about uh, the goosebump God. Now, imagine yourself, just for a moment, go back maybe several years. Let's say go back to your teenage years, and you, let's, let, let's put ourselves in a situation. You're a 16-year-old. Your dad just died from brain cancer. Your mom is so messed up because of that that she's absent. You have no friends or siblings that have any sense of what's going on in the world around them. They have no comfort for you, and you go to church. You get in your car, and you go to church, and you're looking for God. You want to find him. You want to sense him. You want to feel him. You want to be in his presence, but yet you come up empty. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wanted to sense the presence of God and just come up empty? You read your Bible, nothing happens. You know, you read the great stories that you used to read uh, when you were a kid and, and brought such amazement and wonder to you, and now you wonder if God really does exist. It just doesn't work for you anymore when you read the Bible. When others are singing, you know, and they're crying about uh, their experience with God, and you're just coming up empty. You have no emotional connection with Him at all. And then when you pray, you don't feel God at all. And you just wonder, is he really there? You want to believe, but yet you don't feel anything. And sometimes that's what we base all of our decisions on, how I feel. I'm going to suggest that you take an inventory this next week and find out how many decisions you make simply based on how I feel. How I feel. Not what do I believe, not who do I trust, but how do I feel. And we'll find that probably a lot of those Decisions are made simply based on how I feel. Today, we want to talk about the goosebump God because I believe that a lot of people, most people want to believe in God, but yet they have this distorted image of who he is. And so today we want to dispel some of those myths uh, because every once in a while you come across somebody and I'll call this the annoying Christian. Have you ever run across an annoying Christian? Do they live in your household? I just... That was just a bonus thing there. Uh, but you, you might go to a small group or you get around some Christian friends, and there's always, and I don't know why it is, but it's generally a lady. Ladies, I make no, uh, you know, uh, I make no value judgment on this at all. But generally, my experience has been it's a lady. And she says, oh, God was so wonderful to me today. I woke up this morning, and it was just like the sunrise, and I just... I sensed God right there, and, man, and it brought me to tears. I went around, and, you know, I went to the mall, and I prayed, and I asked God for a front row parking space, and boom, I got a front row parking space. Anybody here ever pray for a parking space? I do every time. I do every time. And you would be surprised how many times I get within the first three places. I'm not saying that God does that, but, you know, you know 
You know, but this lady, she gets a front row space every time. You know, her husband just got a promotion and a big fat raise, and they're going to go on vacation next month. And all of a sudden, things are looking good for her. Her son uh, applied for college, an Ivy League college, and he got accepted. And God is so good. God is so wonderful. He is all pervasive. And you just sit there and you go, man, I don't experience God like that. In fact, you know what? Last time I went to the mall, I had to park next door at the doctor's office. And walked two miles to the, to the mall. You know, it's Christmas time. I had to hike forever, and it was raining. I didn't have an umbrella. And the umbrella that I did have had already been blown out, you know, and it was no good to me. And so I had to walk. I got into the mall. It was raining. My, my husband, he lost his job last week, and we're in really difficult trouble. It is tough, tough, tough. And my son, he applied for the community college, and he got rejected. Life is a bummer for me. And this lady's talking about the magnificent presence of God and how all of her circumstances are wonderful. And yet, wonder, is God real? Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, okay? How many of you have ever felt the presence of God, ever? Just raise your hand. Ever felt the presence of God, okay? Put your hands down. How many of you felt the presence of God in church today already? Okay, okay, good, good. Now, I'm going to ask you more questions. How do you know? How do you know it was the presence of God that you felt? Have you ever, I'll just put it this way. Remember when you met your husband or your wife or your girlfriend, your significant other, and the first time you met them, you had this overwhelming sense of tinglys? You know, just went, whoo, man, I can't wait. I remember when I met Cindy, man, I couldn't wait to call her on the phone. I couldn't wait to go see her again. I couldn't wait to leave a note on her car. I couldn't wait to see her. You know, and I had these tinglys. Now, was that the presence of God? No. She's in the room. She's in the room. Hello. Okay. No, it, pro- it probably wasn't. You know, the tingly feeling. You know, did I cry when she said, yes, I'll marry you? You want to know, don't you? Okay. Now, did I, have a, did, I have, did I have a peaceful feeling, you know? And could that peaceful feeling that we sometimes associate with God be simply because, you know, I got a pay raise. I feel comfortable. I feel like I'm set. Could that peace come from that? And those are the things we often associate with an experience with God. The tingly feelings, you know, I cried when we worshiped, you know, and I have this peace about me that, that surpasses all understanding. I just can't explain how peaceful I am when I'm in the presence of God. Now, God's presence can give you the tingly feeling, can't it? But so can that loved one that you just can't wait to see. Okay, that can happen too. God's presence can make you cry, right? You ever cry during worship? I have. And, and you, you know, you just feel the presence of God. But you know what? A good YouTube video I watch can do that too. <laughs> Anybody here ever see that old movie, Ricky Schroeder? It's called The Champ. Yes. Yeah. Did you cry? Yes. You didn't cry? Oh, Simone, you are hard-hearted. Oh, gosh. I remember at my sister's house, Cindy and I are there, and we're watching this movie, and I'm laying on the floor, you know, in front of everybody. Man, man, this kid, champ, champ. And I'm just going, man, and if there's a kid, you know, that loses a parent or a loved one, man, my heart breaks. And so can it be that? Well, I don't know. Have you ever had the presence of that peaceful feeling, you know? And, And other things can bring that peace too, can't they? You know, when you just have a hard day at work and you go and lay down in bed, you go, ah, that can be peaceful too, can't it? Well, how do we know? Okay. Now, if you didn't feel God today, whose fault is it? I don't know. 
Maybe it could be God's fault. Maybe it's just not present. Do you believe that? Two questions you always need to ask. What do I believe and who do I trust? What do I believe about the presence of God? What do I believe about that? Just shout out some stuff. He's always there, right? He's omnipresent. He is always there. Not only is he here, he's next door at the restaurant. You know, and after we get done here, and if you go to lunch after, you're not going to lunch. You're going to a baby shower. John, I'll see you there. And, and we go, we go, we go, you know, wherever we are, I just, no, nah, I won't. Wherever we are, God is. And not only does he follow us there, he's already there. And so when you find yourself in a predicament, in a situation, someplace, guess what? God is there. God's there. So if I believe that, you know, is God present here today? Did I sense him? I hope so. Okay. Now, is it God's fault? Eh, Probably not. Is it my fault? Could be. Could be. Have you ever been someplace and not realized that there were things around that were really around? Yeah. You know, how many of you have ever been in a dangerous situation and you didn't realize it until after the fact? Yeah, the danger was there beforehand, though, right? You know, you just didn't see it. You just didn't know it. Okay? Now, could it be Clarissa's fault that we didn't sense God's presence today? She's our worship leader. Could it be her fault? I warned her, I warned her ahead of time I was going to take a shot at her, but she didn't know what I was going to shoot at. So, so I'm going to say no because our band and, and Clarissa, they do an excellent job ushering us into the presence of God. Okay? So it's not her fault. Now, here, I'm going to make a statement that I want you to fill in the blanks here. If you don't always feel God's presence, you're not alone. You're not alone. If you don't always feel God's presence, you're not alone. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 88, 13 and 14. But I cry to you for help, Lord. I cry to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He's diligent. He's crying for help. His prayer in the morning is happening every day. Okay, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? This is a guy that wrote the Bible. He wrote the Bible, and there was a point in time where he did not experience God's presence. Now, we know that that David wrote much of the Psalms, right? Remember, what was the greatest one that you remember that he wrote? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why does he say he will fear no evil? For thou art with me. You're with me. I fear no evil. And man, that's a statement of all statements. And when you walk the world today, I want you to, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of whatever it is out there, I will fear no evil because I know you are with me. You could say that same prayer, couldn't you? You could offer that same um, comment. And so he says that. But he says also that there were times when he felt all alone. Why do my enemies triumph over me? Why is it that you're not here? Why aren't you taking care of these guys, God? I feel like I'm all alone. The same guy that wrote the 23rd Psalm says, why do my enemies triumph over me? The Apostle Paul. Now, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? He wrote much of the New Testament. Okay? He was so connected to God. In fact, there was a point in time in his life where he went to what he describes as the third heaven. Did you know there's three heavens? There's three heavens, isn't there? Because he was in the third one. So where's the first one? Where's the second one? Okay. The first one is what I would describe as our atmosphere here. Okay, the atmosphere. And have you ever seen pictures from like the Hubble telescope? You know, looking back at or maybe from a, a, 
a spacecraft looking back at Earth. And man, there's some cool things on National Geographic. And one of those, I forget the name of the series, but there's these astronauts that they're being asked about, you know, this wonderful world that we live in. And they, they went up there, and most of the astronauts that go into outer space, they take pictures. They take like a Nikon camera, you know, and take pictures. And when you see the Earth, you'll see this little blue line that goes around it. And it looks like a reflection, but it's really our atmosphere. And our atmosphere is very small. It's very close to the Earth, okay? And it's very close. That's the first heaven. God separated the waters that were above the Earth from those that were below the, or separated, he separated the waters. And so, so that water comes down, and some of it makes lakes, some of it makes oceans, and then there's the atmosphere that is laden with moisture, okay? And so there's that moisture barrier there, and that's one heaven. Now, there's a second heaven where the stars and the planets and all that stuff exist, and the third heaven is when you're in the presence of God, okay? So there's three heavens. If you ever talk to one of your Mormon friends, they will talk about three destinations for you, three heavens. That's not what Paul was talking about when he talks about the third heaven. So he goes to the third heaven. Now, also, when he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he was all, like all alone. For 13 years, he was not involved in ministry. He was begging. He was chomping at the bit. Lord, send me. I want to be a preacher. 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 But for 13 years, he had no connection with ministry. And then finally, afterwards, you know, he got together with the apostles and stuff, and he started getting ministry opportunities. There was a point in time in his life where he felt like God's not going to use me. God saved me. God brought me into his presence, but he's not going to use me. And he had that experience. Where is God? Jesus. He walked the earth for 33 years. He did some miraculous things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He provided food for people, thousands of people, out of a few small fishes and few loaves of bread. And he multiplied them and fed people. He did miraculous stuff. At the end of his life, he's hanging on a cross, making the payment, making the payment for your sin and my sin. And he's hanging on the cross, and he says this in Aramaic. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Anybody know what that is? Any Arabic speakers here? Yeah, Simona's Arabic. And uh, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you withdrawn your presence from me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why, have, why do I not sense your presence? Even Jesus had a period of time in his life where he did not sense the presence of God. Yet he was God incarnate. He didn't sense his dad's presence at that time. C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote some really incredible stuff. Anybody here read the Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis, Christian author, and it's Christian fantasy. I mean, it's really a cool series of books. Uh, but there was times in his life where he did not experience the presence of God. And he is a prolific Christian writer, a prolific ex, uh, experiencer of faith. And here's what he wrote. He wrote at one point in his life, a door slammed in my face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. He said, man, it was like God slammed the door in my face, bolted it and double bolted it. And after that, there was silence. Why would God be silent to us? Ah, we're going to ask that question here in a minute. Because um, later on, he wrote these. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? 
Well, let's ask the question, and it's there in your outline. Why is it that at times we do not sense or feel God's presence? Number one, number one, fill this in if you're taking notes. Maybe you are over-sensationalizing it. Have you ever over-sensationalized something? You know, you go off the deep end, you just kind of exaggerate something bigger than it really is. Now, what do we believe about God? We've already said it once. What do we believe about God? His omnipresent. He is present all the time, everywhere. So we are not outside the presence of God, but sometimes we over-sensationalize it. In John chapter 6, verses 30 and 31, so they asked him, they're asking Jesus this question, the religious leaders, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Okay, do a trick for us, Jesus, to prove that you're God. You know, do a trick. You know, do something miraculous. Show us who you are. You know, do something really incredible that we can't say, oh man. But then when Jesus would do stuff, they would always blame it on the devil or something else. So uh, here's what he responds with. Oh, no, no, they, they continue on. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, you do the same for us, Jesus. Were they over-sensationalizing their past history? They were expecting history to repeat itself. They were expecting Jesus, and they were expecting God to do the same thing now that he did then. Do something miraculous. Do something that I can see. How many times have we said the same thing? You know, if God would just, you fill in the blank, I would believe him. If God would just heal my son, if God would just fix my marriage, if God would just make me prosperous, I would believe in him. And we do the same thing. Um, and so we say, you know, what, what about that, God? What's going on? We expect an angel to appear. You know, we ask God a question. You know, God, what about the future of my life? What about my career? What about my spouse? What about my children? What about my family? And we, you know, we all have different questions. If you just give me the answer to that question, God, boom, I'd believe you. And I would know that you are real. It's kind of like we're expecting God to show up on our TV set every, six, every morning at 6 a.m. We turn it on. He gives us instructions for the day, and he says, here, I'm real. Check me out. I'll see you back here tomorrow at 6. You know, tune in tomorrow. And we expect God to kind of appear like that and show up and do the miraculous. But I'll be honest with you, there have been times in my life where I thought God would really show up big. And I thought, man, I'm going to experience the presence of God. And it kind of fell flat because I was expecting something different than what God wanted to provide. I remember as a 10-year-old kid, I was baptized at the age of 10. And I thought, oh, man, when I go into the water, man, it's going to be like, you know, I'm going to come out and I'm going to glow. You know, and, and maybe I won't have to walk up the steps out of the baptistry. Maybe I'll just kind of float. You know, it'll be so awesome. And I remember uh, standing there and the, and the pastor's down there in the water and, I, and, he, and he looks up at me and it's my turn. And I go, uh, uh, and I was scared to death. And I walked down this. Finally, he reached out his hand, you know, and he took his hand. And I went down in the water and I looked out this way. And that's where the opening was to the sanctuary. And there were people out there. And I thought, <laughs> and I went under the water and I thought, man, if I could just stay under the water, that'd be okay. Because I'm going to come up, I'm going to be all wet. And people are going to look at me and go, but you know what? Maybe I'm going to glow. Maybe they'll go. <laughs> so I come up out of the water, and I was certain I was going to glow. No glow. You know, and as a 10-year-old kid, I looked out, just looked over, and everybody's going. I thought, 
really? I didn't even score a goal. I didn't hit a home run. And they're cheering. And I, and I came out of the water and I just went, huh. I'll be honest, at my baptism, I just expected, I over-sensationalized it. And it just didn't meet my expectations. Now, we're going to have baptism next Sunday. Uh, no, two weeks. A week from Sunday. And you're going to have the experience of a lifetime. It's going to be the most incredible <laughs> spiritual experience you've ever had. No, it'll probably just be a point in time where you said, you know what? I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be buried with him in baptism. I'm going to be raised to walk a new life. And I want people to know that that's what I'm doing. That's why baptism is public, so that people know where I stand. It's a public declaration of my faith. I'm going to go under the water. I'm going to come up out of the water. And I'm going to tell people I'm going to be a Christ follower from this point forward. Okay? Now, I didn't have all of that stuff, so I asked the question, what's wrong with me? Okay? Sometimes you may ask the question of God, what's wrong with me? You know, what did I expect? Did I over-sensationalize it? Did my expectations, were they different than what you said they should be? And so I come to this conclusion. If we always felt God's presence, following him would not be by faith. Following him would not be by faith. If it was always sensing his presence, it wouldn't take much faith to follow him, would it? If, I always, if God appeared in the flesh and took me by the hand and said, okay, Mike, come here, do this, do that, it wouldn't require faith, would it? You know, I could do it by sight. I could just do it because he's, he's doing that and helping me do it. So that's why it's called faith. I trust that he is here. I trust that he is present, and I want people in my baptism to know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? Second, okay, why don't we always feel God's presence? Number two, and this might be very common to people who have been uh, walking with God for some time. Maybe your heart is hardened. Okay, maybe your heart is hardened. Now, you know what a hard heart comes from? Unconfessed sin. Hard hearts come from unconfessed sin. Matthew 13, uh, verses 14 and 15. And here's what Jesus is saying about the religious leaders. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. Their heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. You know what calloused hearts are the product of? Routine. Routine. When I experience God the same way every day, or don't experience God the same way every day, or when I experience stuff in life and it becomes a routine for me, sometimes that causes my heart to become calloused and hard. I don't expect to hear from God. I don't expect to see God. I don't expect tomorrow to be any different than today was. And so my heart becomes hardened, and my habits become routine. And when my habits become routine, they have a tendency never to be routine, but they really have a tendency to fall. Okay? My habits get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The ha- good habits I usually don't continue with. Bad habits, I continue to reinforce those. So sin separates us from God. Now, does it really separate us from God? Okay. Let me ask you this. If you are married, if you were married and your spouse was unfaithful to you, would you still be married? For a little bit, huh? (laughs) Now, I'm going to say this about adultery. Adultery is a forgivable sin. Did you know that? You know? And I'm not saying that serial adultery should be, you know, that needs to be dealt with. Uh, But you don't have to divorce somebody. Whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the things I I often ask is, what are the deal breakers? What would cause you to say, "Eh, we're done? 
Because I think it's fair for the other spouse to know what it is, you know, so they don't do it, you know. Hello? And they, they uh, so therefore, state it up front. If you do this, if you're unfaithful to me, I'm, I'm kicking you to the curb. Okay, so be, be honest about it. But just because there's unfaithfulness does not mean that you're not married anymore. You're still married. So when there's a, a, a sin committed against God, are we still his children? Yeah. But what happens? When you're unfaithful to your spouse in your marriage, what happens? Oh, you're going to get the cold shoulder. You're going to get some distance. There's not going to be the openness there once was. There's not going to be the communication there once was until it's rebuilt, and that can be fixed. But that same thing happens with God. When we, are, when we are unfaithful to him and when we sin, it causes us to withdraw from God. Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? And they sinned in the garden. They ate from the one tree that God said, don't eat. And they did. What was their immediate response? They were shamed and they went and hid. They went and hid. Did God move? Did God say, oh, man, I'm going to withdraw from that. I'm going to run away. No, God did not move. In fact, God was whistling to him in the garden. Yoo-hoo, where are you? I can't find you. Uh, where are you guys? Ooh. And he finally finds them. They say, he says, hey, what happened? Did you eat from that tree? Oh, yeah, we did. And we were so shamed that we went and made uh, clothing out of fig leaves. And I think fig leaves has got to be a terrible thing to make clothing out of. But... Uh, they made that because they were ashamed. They were covering up. They were trying to be, they were no longer transparent before God. And so now uh, things are broken. But God didn't move. People move. And when we sin, we withdraw from God. Why? Because we have shame and we don't want God to say, hey, yo, you know, what did you do? Even though God already knows what we did. So we might as well confess it and be right with him. So this, this unconfessed sin goes on and on and on. Now, none of, you know, many of us, uh, have not committed adultery, we haven't done, c- committed murder, but how many of us have ever lied? Okay, yeah, okay, I think that we, we went over that last week. How many, how many of us have ever had envy? You know, I wish that I had that job that so-and-so has. I wish I had their income, I wish I had their car, I wish I had their house, I wish they had their whatever. Okay, we have envy. How many, and I'm, I'm going to be very cautious here. How many of us have ever eaten more than we should have? It's called gluttony, okay, gluttony. I was a little gluttonous last night at dinner, um, you know, but it's kind of interesting because there's more acceptable sins, you know, aren't there? You know, overeating at dinner, you know, a little gluttony here, a little gluttony there uh, is not nearly as bad as lying or cheating or stealing. However, it has that. And when we do the minor sins and we do them with impunity and we do them regularly and consistently, what does it do? It hardens our heart. We don't hear God anymore. Okay, so we, we need to be careful. How about laziness? Anybody here ever been lazy? Today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anybody here ever gossip? You know, there are sins that are more acceptable than others. And we don't mind practicing the more acceptable sins, but yet they still harden our hearts. Okay, now, um, we, we get involved in Christianity and we think it's more about our performance than it is about the presence of God. I want you to get rid of that idea. It's not about your performance. Christianity is not about your performance. It's about having the presence of God in your life, hearing him and responding to him, not performing for him. Performance will cause your heart to harden, even though 
you might think you're doing great things, you're doing good things, you're so legalistic that you're bound up in the rules that you don't hear God say, hey, help that lady over there. Oh no, I got to keep the rules. I can't, oh, I don't know if I should, you know. Oh. And we get so consumed with performance that we don't hear the still small voice of God saying, help someone, do this, do that. And it's about what we're avoiding rather than about what we're doing. We get involved in religious duties rather than genuine devotion. Religious duties rather than genuine devotion. Religious duties do what? I got to come to church every Sunday. I got to come to church. And here, you do. Okay, don't get me wrong. You got to come to church every Sunday. For me, not for God, for me. Okay, you got to come. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that, is that God might have something for you to do on Sunday every once in a while. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I'm going to be real careful here. Does not necessarily mean you have to come to church every Sunday. It means you have to set the Sabbath aside for God's use. Not for your pleasure, okay? Not for your pleasure, but for God's use. If God says, hey, I want you to go out to uh, um, paradise and help the people sift through their belongings, like some of our people did uh, on a Saturday, Uh, but I want you to do it on Sunday, do it. Do it. But make sure you're setting it aside for God's use, not your pleasure. Okay, number three, okay? Why might we have difficulty hearing God or sensing God? Maybe because God wants to draw you closer. Maybe God wants to draw you closer. Have you ever noticed that absence makes the heart grow fonder? Okay, check this out. Acts 17, 26 and 27. For one man he made all the, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now, who was the one man? Who was the one man that God made to inhabit the whole earth? Adam? Okay. Or Noah, too. You could even say Noah there, too, right? Because everything boils back down to Noah. Okay. But Adam, for one, from one man he made uh, the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Does God know where you live? Yeah, he marked out the boundaries of your lands, right? He knows your time in history. He knows where you are, and he knows what you should be doing. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Why did God make you here today? So that you would seek for God, so that you would reach out for him, and so that you would find him. Because where is he? He's not far. He's not far. In fact, he is present. Okay, familiarity does what? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Familiarity does what? Breeds contempt. Absolutely. So if we're so familiar with our habits, if we're so familiar with our routine, what do we have? We have no regard for the unknown. We have no uh, awareness of something beyond that. So familiarity breeds contempt. And we just get to where, gosh, you know, it's the same old, same old, every day, day in, day out, same thing. Uh, probably Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, your days look very similar. Your feelings are different when you get to Friday. However, the days look very much the same. And so it breeds contempt, and we start thinking, you know, it's going to be just like it was yesterday. I don't need to be heads up. I can go through this on autopilot. God does not want you to operate on autopilot. God wants you to operate with a sensitivity to his leadership that allows you to take advantage of the opportunities he presents before you. When you're around strange people, what do you do? 
you have a tendency to avoid, to pull back. I'm not familiar with those people, and I don't know them, so I'm going to pull back a little bit. Actually, that might be just the people God wants you to get involved with. Okay, Engage them in conversation. Engage them, find out their needs. Find out, hey, how can I pray for you? What can I do for you? Uh, what do I have? What do you need? Let's put those two things together. Uh, I, have, I have a great prayer life. Man, you need some prayer. Let's put that together. Let's see what we can produce. And so, therefore, God brings people into your life to do that. Um, the fear of losing something usually makes us want it more, right? You know, fear of losing something makes us want it more. So when God is absent a little bit, it should make us want to pursue him all the more. Pursue him all the more. But where do we make the mistake? Why do we not pursue him all the more? Because we think that when God is not present, he's the one who's moved. And it's not true. We are the ones who have moved. And when we have moved, what we ought to do is just like uh, John tells us in Revelation, go back to where you once were, remember what you once were, and go back and do the things you did at first. Go back there and reestablish that relationship with God. Okay. Um, why do challenges and hard times and suffering generally produce the best in people? Why is that? Have you ever noticed that? You know, when something tragic happens in our world, you know, when, when the towers in New York fell from the, from the uh, planes that crashed into it, uh, why did that bring out the best in people? Ah, because we become resourceful, because we realize we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And when we realize that we're part of something bigger than ourselves in relationship to God, we will find that we have the courage, we have the tenacity, we have the, the resources in order to make a difference. Now, comfort, ease, and prosperity, what do they produce? They produce the worst. Yeah, have you ever noticed that? Comfort, ease, and prosperity, what does that make me do? I want to keep this going just like it is. Comfort, ease, and prosperity. So you know what we do in order to keep that going? Nothing. We do nothing because I don't want to upset the balance. You know, if things are going good now, I'm just going to sit back and ride it as long as I can. Well, God doesn't want that, does he? He doesn't want us to remain in the same place. He wants us to become greater uh, tools for his work. He wants us to become more dependent upon him. And so what does he do? He brings in a little bit of discomfort, challenges, and hard times. He'll bring that in so that we lean on him more, so that we are more focused on what we can do around us, and so therefore he'll bring that in. Now, deprivation draws out desire. Have you ever noticed that? When you have not had anything to drink for a while, what happens to you? Don't say you get dehydrated. You say, I'm looking for a water fountain. Okay? Deprivation causes me to seek out the things that I need in order to satisfy that deprivation. When you don't eat, what do you do? Go to McDonald's because as you know there's food there. You know it's fast. You know that you're going to get it in your gut and it's going to satisfy you. It's going to fill you up. It's going to rot your gut out, but it's going to satisfy you. It's going to satisfy you, you know, immediately, but it is going to kill you in the long run. Okay? So that's, that's what happens. So um, when you don't feel God's presence, what should that cause you to do? Seek him all the more. And sometimes God withdraws a little bit just to, just to pique your desire, your desire. And so don't think that he has abandoned you. Don't think that he has withdrawn from you because when he hides himself a little bit from you, it should cause you to want him more and more and more because you experience the best in life when you are near him. Okay, now, uh, God wants to be pursued. Why is that? Why does God want to be pursued and loved? 
There's something about God that we don't talk about very often. And when we talk about God, God is love. Okay? God is just. God is jealous. God is a jealous God. I remember uh, Oprah Winfrey one time, when she, she walked, really kind of walked away from the Christian faith when she found out that God was jealous because she thought he was jealous of her. No, God is not jealous of anybody. God is jealous for you. God wants you to want him. He is jealous for you. He doesn't want anything else to draw you away from him. He doesn't want anything else to supplant him or replace him. God wants you to want him, and he's jealous for you, not jealous of you. Don't ever think that God is jealous of you, because really, we don't bring a whole lot to the party. So, <laughs> Jeremiah 29, verses 13 and 14. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. With all your heart. When there is no other, when there's other motive for seeking me other than to love me. You know, have you ever sought God because he could do some cool things for you? You know, and it wasn't very satisfying. But when I seek God because I love him and I respect him and I value him and I hold him in awe, that's when I find him. That's when I find him. When I seek God in worship, that's when I find him. When I seek God to do stuff for me, I don't find him. You know why? Because that God does not exist. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And we learned that on the on-demand God, the first, the first of our series. We exist for God. God does not exist for us. He loves us. He wants the best for us. Don't get me wrong. He wants to be with you. He's jealous for you. And so, therefore, God wants you, but God does not, we do not demand from God the things we want him to do. Okay. When we experience God, occasionally we get goosebumps. Have you ever noticed that? Occasionally you just go, ooh. You know, that was awesome. That was the church. That was the church. That was God. And you go, oh, that was really awesome. And sometimes we get tingly, you know. Sometimes we get tears. Not always, though. Not always. Sometimes in ordinary, everyday situations in life, we experience God. I want you to think this next week about some ordinary, everyday experiences in which you, in which you uh, hear God. I, I'm going to give you some of the ones that I've had just this last week. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had outreach over at Mike Day Park. And I sensed the presence of God there. You know, we got a chance to meet some people. We got a chance to help some people. We got a chance to pray with people. And, and, I, was, I, and I, I looked around, and I see all the people of our church, you know, busy preparing the meals and, and dispensing and, and talking with people. And I sensed the presence of God. And I said to myself, I said, that's the church. That's the church. I look out at you today, and I say, this is the church in preparation to be the church. Okay, this is the church in preparation to be the church, because you're going to be the church when you go outside those doors, and when you touch somebody's life, when you encourage them, when you make them better for having been with you than they were before they were with you. And so that's the church. This is preparation, okay, preparation for being the church. And so I just go, man, that's God. God is present in that. I love going home. I live with my daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter. And uh, I mentioned the best last. Uh, but uh, <laughs> my granddaughter, I, I, every, every day I go in, and, uh, and she knows. My kids know. Uh, I have this whistle. 
You know, whenever I go into a room or whenever I'm in a store and they might be an aisle or two over, I'll whistle and they know, they know it's me. So whenever I go in the house, I whistle and Zoya, you know, she'll perk up and she'll come 90% of the time, give me a big hug. I'll go sit in a, a chair and she'll come and she'll sit in the same chair with me. And, uh, and I just go, that's God. That's the love of God. You know, a child that, you know, that, that I love, that loves me. I say, that's God. I ride back and forth to work every day with the love of my life. And I just sense, God is there. I look over at Cindy and she's just, she's just riding along. I go, God has blessed me tremendously. I would not be where I am without her, without God. Uh, but I know God is in that. God is present in that. I love it when, when I get to do what I'm made to do. I don't often know that, what I'm made to do. But every once in a while, I do something and it goes, ah, oh, surprisingly well. And I go, man, that was God. God was in that. God was present in that. I often look in the rearview mirror as I'm going west in the morning when the sun's coming up. And in the, in the morning, I can see in my rearview mirror the sunrise. And many times it is just brilliant. It is just, and I go, that's God. God is present and he's smiling on my day that I'm about to have. I hope that you can find God in the simple things of life. I hope you're looking for him. Make an excuse to usher in the presence of God. Make an excuse to find him. Make it a priority to experience him. Because he is, what do we believe about God? He is omnipresent. That's just a big fat word that says God's always there all the time. He's never far from me. He is always with me. He's always, I mean, God is this close to you. God's that close. He is everywhere all at the same time. So you don't have to go far to find him. I hope you experience the presence of God. Some of you are here this morning. You have not yet made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the greatest experience in life that you can ever have. To finally surrender and say, you know what, God? I know, I understand now that it's not about me demanding you to do stuff for me. It's not about the rules anymore. I know that Jesus even was upset with all the rules that the Pharisees and Sadducees had made. And I know that it's not all about feelings. I know it's about what I believe. And so, Lord, today I want to give you my life. I want to trust you because I know you much more closely than I used to know. I know more about you. I know you more uh, properly than I used to know you. And so, Lord, I want to give you my life today. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. If you just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to lead you in a prayer. Father, I confess to you that I have lived life my own way. And Father, I confess that I've come up empty. And I need help. I need you to forgive me of all the junk of my life. All the stuff that I've done that's self-serving, that's uh, led me to take advantage of people maybe, that's led me to put myself first. And so Lord, I ask you to forgive me of that. I know your word calls that sin. And I ask you to lead me for the rest of my life. I thank you that you have come into my life and that you are going to be part of it. 
that you're going to be central in it, that you're going to give me leadership. And Lord, I pray that I will follow closely because that is my desire. And so Lord, I thank you for that. Now you might have prayed that prayer this morning. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, just jet your hand up in the air real quick. Let me know. Okay, 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 good. Father, I thank you for those who have signified that they want to become followers of you. Lord, I pray that you'll develop within them a heart that beats closely with yours, that will understand what your priorities are, that will understand what, your, uh, what you've deemed to be important, and that it will be important to us. I pray that you give us the faith and the courage to face the days ahead. And Lord, I pray that you would be made known through us, that people will know that we are followers of you and that we are not ashamed. So Lord, today, we give you praise and glory and honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen.